Get ready. If you got a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 13. I'm asked if Miss Lacey Vernon would come down and read for us this morning. So if you would, please stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. Uh, Be with us now as we uh, look at your word and as we come to, uh, oh, uh, maybe a controversial section of scripture. Uh, I pray that we again would not get bogged down in the details, but see the theme of what you're trying to show us today, which is to make sure that we're always looking for the real thing, not the counterfeit, and that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and what he's done uh, on, on our true Savior and our true Lord who died uh, to, to ransom and to redeem uh, all those who put their trust in him. Thank you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, you guys can be seated. So what we, we talked about last week as we looked at Revelation 12 was that essentially Revelation 12 through 14 is going to kind of give us this big picture view of the battle that, that, that's been raging uh, for centuries. Right? And so what we said last week is that Satan tried to kill the offspring of the woman who was ultimately Jesus. And so failing at that and being defanged by Christ through his life, his death, his resurrection, now Satan turns his attention to persecuting God's church. And so we, we said last week is that he does that through deceit. So he, he does that by, by lying to us. Um, he does it through accusations, by trying to, to remind us of our past or, or by trying to get us to, to believe something that's not true of ourselves or trying to get us to believe that, hey, you can't read the Bible, you can't pray, you can't evangelize. He does it through false teaching. So he gets us to buy things that are not true from the scripture. And, and what we tried to get you to see is that Satan's a maniac, that he's seeking to destroy and take as many of us with him as possible because he knows his time is limited. And what we said was that we fight back with the blood of the lamb. We fight back with the the gospel. That the gospel says, no, Jesus paid it all and he has no right to accuse you anymore before the father. We fight back with the word of our testimony by saying, no, this is what the word says of me. Right, saying you can say what you want all day long, but you can get that trash out of here because I know what the Bible says is true. We do it by loving Jesus more than life itself, by not allowing this world to become more important to us than Jesus. And essentially, when we focus on Jesus, that leaves nothing in our life for Satan to grab hold of. So he can't win. And so what I want you to do this morning is go back to our war room like we talked about last week. We have our screens on the wall. 
So if chapter 12 shows us the view from about 30,000 feet, chapter 13 is going to show us the body cam view of the soldiers that are on the ground. So all the things in chapter 12 that Satan's described as doing, he does through his servants that we're going to read about here in chapter 13. And at the end of chapter 12, look at verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's us on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, some early manuscripts have this as part of chapter 13, but essentially what he's saying is by standing on the sand of the sea, it's an allusion to multitudes or vast numbers of people. So so what John's trying to get us to see is that Satan will hold sway over vast numbers of people. And that these beasts that he's fixing to call out from the sea and from the earth are his vehicle into uh, tricking and deceiving this vast number of people. All right? So look at verse 13. Let's go in verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Satan's on the sand of the sea. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So notice Satan the dragon calls this first beast out of the sea. And this creature, I want you to notice, is a reworking of Daniel's beast. So we've said this, and I want you to keep remembering this. There's nothing said in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament. Revelation is just full of Old Testament metaphors, right? And if you go back and you look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, you read these words. It'll be on the screen for you. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So Daniel sees four beasts, and we go on to find out that these four beasts are just successive empires that will rule over God's people, Israel. Right? So we start with Babylon and then the Medo Persians and then Greece and then ultimately Rome. And so what John does right here in Revelation chapter 13 is he takes the four beasts and he combines them into one beast. So all the evil characteristics of those four kingdoms are now embodied in one beast. So what this beast represents is the opposition to God's people throughout history manifested through political economic, military, social, philosophical, or religious persecution, mainly in nations and kingdoms that seek to destroy God's people. And if you notice in verse three, it had a mortal wound on its head, but that it was healed. So what that means is that every time you kill this nation or every time you kill this ideology, it just seems to come back in another form, right? So in John's day and age, was it alive and well? You better believe it. This was alive and well in the nation of Rome, right? Nero was a nut. We've talked about Nero. Nero was so crazy and so power hungry that he killed his own mama in order to get power. Nero killed Paul. Nero killed Peter. And at the time that John's writing, Domitian was in charge, but he was just taken up where Nero left off. But the thing about Nero was, is that when Nero died, right? Nero killed himself by running a dagger through his throat right? Through his head. And there were rumors for almost 30 years after Nero died that Nero really didn't die. Go back and check history and you'll see that people were so terrified that Nero was going to come back with an army that they had all these rumors like, oh, Nero's still alive, man. And in fact, three different people at three different points in history rolled back into Rome saying, yep, I'm Nero, didn't die, I'm here. And what's crazy is they looked just like him. It was uncanny, they said, how much they looked like him. So in a sense, maybe John had Nero in mind here, but ultimately what John's saying is that any nation that persecutes God's people, you can kill it and another one will just come back, right? So go back to the Protestant reformers. You know who they thought it was? The medieval Catholic church. All the people that they killed. Look at Calvin, look at Luther. They believed that this antichrist or this beast was the Catholic church. You see it through Nazism. We wipe Nazism out, what happens? You get communism. You wipe communism out, you get socialism. Each of these systems, individually and collectively, represents this beast. So you see it in our modern world through radical Islamic nations, right? You're beginning to see it in places like Australia through the crazy COVID lockdowns and the things that are taking place there that are hindering the church from gathering, right? Have you seen any of this? I mean, they're sending the military on their own people for walking just feet away from their own home, right? This is the kind of thing that John's talking about right here. And some of us better keep our eyes open because we see it in parts of our country as well, don't we? Yes. And so here's the thing. Although the name is never used in the book of Revelation, and many of you have no clue about this. I love this. Most scholars believe this first beast is the Antichrist, right? Did you know that? You'll never find the name Antichrist in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation. It's not in there. So, so anti, meaning against or instead of, and Christos, meaning Messiah or Christ. Most scholars believe this is who he's referring to. In John's epistles, this same John 
writes in three different letters. He writes this in 1 John 2, 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 2 John 2, 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, based on those descriptions, it's safe to say that the Antichrist is anyone who denies Jesus Christ, that it's anyone who denies the Father and the Son, that every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh could be Antichrist. And what John wants us to see is that all these will be embodied in any nation or any system that is Antichrist. Okay? Many believe um, that, that these same qualities will be exhibited in a singular individual closer to the return of Christ. Right? And I think there's evidence to suggest that we will probably see that eventually as the day draws near. But look what happens to this nation, right? This nation that persecutes God's people in verse 4. What's it say? It says that the, the whole world worships, worships this beast. It says, oh, who's like this beast? Look how strong this beast is. Who can wage war against this beast? Verse 8 tells us that people who worship this beast do so because their names have not been written in the book of life. So because they're not believers, because they've not trusted in Jesus, they're deceived. So we dealt with this in an earlier sermon, but how do you know if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, you've responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. You've turned away from your sin, you've repented of your sin, and you've turned to trust in Christ's righteousness by faith. So what verse 8 is telling us is the declaration that whoever does not worship Jesus Christ as Lord is guilty of idolatry. So anytime we give our life, strength, and energy, and devotion to something or someone, we're guilty of worshiping, worshiping an antichrist or a false Christ. Right? To, anytime we, we give our energy and devotion to some political power, to military power, and hear me, some nation or individual who does not acknowledge Jesus, we are guilty of worshiping the beast. Now, I told you last week we're in a fight. And the thing about this fight is, is that it's very, very tough. Because I think what, what we're going to see today is that Satan is so tricky and he's so subtle. It would be so awesome if Satan just walked in and he plopped a, a, a playbook on your desk and goes, all right, here it is, boys. Play by play, step by step, exactly what I'm going to do, right? Just memorize it and you'll know exactly what I'm going to do. That would be really, really easy if he did that. But he doesn't do that. He's subversive. He's tricky. He's deceitful. And listen to me. His main objective is not political power, but it's capturing the loyalty of men and women and diverting their attention away from Christ. That's what he seeks to do. So this beast doesn't punish us. He doesn't put us in jail. Now it may come to that eventually, but simply what this first beast wants us to do is worship the state. That's it. And everybody look at me. He's good at it, isn't he? 
He is so good at it. And he's so subversive that we don't even know it's, it's happening. Because here's the thing. It's gonna sound right. You're gonna be sitting there listening to it and it's gonna sound right. You saw it all through 2020. Pulpits where men were designed to point people to Christ instead of pointing people to the state, didn't they? They're like, oh, your only chance of salvation is if you vote for this guy. Your only chance of salvation is if we can just get America to do this, if we can get America to do this, bringing in political pundits to stand in their pulpits and preach and people applauding it going, oh, that sounds right. That sounds exactly what I'm talking about. And see, that's why he's so subtle. See, he's deceitful and he's tricky. And that's why one sermon last week to get you fired up going, yeah, we're in a fight. That's why it's not enough that we have to be on our guard. So Satan uses this first beast, right? To divert our attention away to the state. But the second beast has another beast to help him. And the reason it's hard is because this beast is the one who deceives us, right? Look at verse 11. Lacey just read this. It says, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority of the first beast in its presence and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed, right? You kill it, it keeps coming back. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now this calls for wisdom. And let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's a number of a man, and the number is 666. So the second beast seeks to get people to trust in and worship political power that has moved out from underneath God. The second beast performs great signs, right? He mimics Elijah. He makes an image of the first beast. It even says that this, third, this second beast breathes life into the first beast. And he makes it difficult for anyone who does not bow down to the first beast because he puts a mark on those who worship him. He makes it difficult for those who don't take the mark to buy, sell, or do business. In Revelation chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20, this beast will be called the false prophet. So remember, true prophets lead people to worship the living God. They point your attention week in and week out to Jesus Christ and to him crucified. False prophets lead people to worship something else, and in this context, mainly the state. So, if the beast from the sea is dragon-manipulated political power, the beast from the land is dragon-manipulated religious power in institutions. See, the, belief, the second beast, it gets you to believe that, hey, this first beast, this is what's best for you. So this political system, this ideology, this is where you need to put your hope and your trust. It gets you to say, well, it's not about you and your kids, it's about your grandkids. So you gotta vote this way, you gotta go this way, you gotta worship this guy, you gotta put your hope in this part of the state because this is what's best for you. See, the second beast also tries to get us to compromise with the culture, 
right? So if you have some people putting their hope in a certain political system or a political way of doing things, you've got others who say, well, let's just compromise with culture. We see it through deconstruction, right? Well, did God really say Right? Did God really say this about gender roles? Did God really say this about male preachers? Did God really say this about homosexuality? Did God really, 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 right? And then they compromise because they don't want to be persecuted by the state, right? How many churches are doing that right now, right? They're compromising because they want to be on the right side of history, so to speak, right? So they're also giving in to the beast because they're worshiping their version of the state. Y'all following me? And it gets us to compromise by taking the mark, all right? Now, I'm going to get a drink, because this is where I'll get emails. I can't wait, all right? Because a lot of you have been rubbing your hands going, oh, what's he going to say about the mark? Here we go. When I was a kid, my parents made me watch this movie called A Thief in the Night. Any of y'all see that movie? Any of y'all make your kids watch it? Shame on you if you did. Right? I wasn't even allowed to watch The Simpsons. But then my parents were like, you're going to sit down and you're going to watch this. Right? And it was frightening. This chick wakes up one morning and like half the earth's gone. Right? And then suddenly all these guys, like military guys, are, are taking over the world. Right? And, and they've got the Antichrist. They've got this beast that they're worshiping. And it gets to the point where it's like either you take the mark. And all of a sudden they roll out this guillotine. Right? Like we're in the French Revolution. Like, I'm like, that's not in Revelation, okay? But anyways, they roll it out. It's like, either you take the mark, you get your head cut off. And there was this scene, and it scares me. I went back and watched it this week because I still remember it, where this woman's like, not gonna take the mark. Y'all remember they strap her down and they roll her under the guillotine? And she's like, I don't wanna take the mark, I don't wanna take the mark. And then all of a sudden she's like, no, I'll take the mark, I'll take the mark. And then this earthquake happens and the ground opens up and everybody runs off and she's just left there under the guillotine like that. Right? And so because she said she was going to take the mark and she compromised, the little bolt that was holding the guillotine up, like it just starts, right? And she's reaching down. She's going to get the strap off. She's going to get out of there. And all of a sudden it goes, boom. And you're like, oh. Yeah, okay. My parents wouldn't let me watch The Simpsons, but I got to watch that. Yeah. I don't think that's what's being talked about here, Okay. I really don't think that this is a literal mark. Now, now a lot of people have lately, all right, and let me just let me take care of a few things for you. A lot of people have said it's the vaccine. And so what they point to is not the vaccine uh, itself, but to the vaccination cards or the passports that they're trying to push on us, right? And, and there are places and there are countries where sadly people are not even being allowed to buy groceries, without one of these things, right? And so you read what it says there and you're like, see man, that's what it's talking about right there. I disagree with vaccine passports. I think it's wrong, but this isn't what they're referring to, right? You gotta remember the mark of the beast is more of a spiritual thing. So check out Revelation 9:4. right? They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, right? Revelation 14, 1, this is what Jay read earlier. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, there's not a teacher out there, especially futurists who believe and will teach that we're literally gonna have a wax seal on our head that God puts there. They don't believe that his name's literally written on our foreheads, but yet they'll turn around and tell you that this mark is a literal thing. 
I don't think it is. And I'm serious because I think if there was some government institution that said, hey, listen, we're going to give you this barcode tattoo, right? It's not like this cool hipster thing, like you're going to get it. It's either on your forehead or on your right hand. You got to get it. If they did that, there's going to be a bunch of us going, I read that passage, sucker. You ain't going to get me? Uh-uh. I already read that. I know exactly what you're trying to do. Ain't happening. And seriously, like, look right now. There is a lot of resistance to these vaccine passports. Like, when you have New York union workers going, I ain't, ain't getting that. No, okay? We know that they're fighting over that. And like I've said, Satan is far more subversive than that, right? So I'm going to explain something to you here. I'm about to blow your minds. I failed college algebra six times. It's all good. Six is one less than seven. You're welcome. Worked on that all week. Seven is the divine number. Six falls short. Three means perfection. So, so three sevens is perfect completion. Three sixes means perfect imperfection. Complete incompletion. So in other words, it's the fullness of dissatisfaction that's an accurate symbol of what false worship is, is that it's empty, that it doesn't satisfy. Six signifies missing the mark. Seven indicates victory. It's John's way of saying for those in Christ, victory is already on our side. So when you worship the state, whenever you put your faith and trust in a political ideology of any kind, what's going to happen every single time, brothers and sisters? It's going to be empty. You're not going to be satisfied. Every four years, November's going to roll around, and if your guy or girl or whoever it is doesn't win, you're going to be empty. You're going to fall short. See, the thing I need you to see is that the absolute best Satan can do is parody what God has already done. Satan's a joke. He's a counterfeiter. We see this in this chapter, all right? So as believers, what do we have? We have the Trinity, don't we? We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in perfect harmony and unity and perfect completion since time began. Fully happy, fully satisfied in one another. What does Satan do? Satan parodies that, doesn't he? So, so what you have is Satan, the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, and the second beast, the false prophet. Satan has just created his own version of the Trinity. It's an incomplete, unholy Trinity. And what John's doing is he's taking shots here. He's like, man, Satan, you're a joke. You're a punk counterfeiter. You can't even make what God's made. You gotta just copy it. You're not even original, man. You're like Hollywood, right? You just keep remaking movies, right? Don't touch the Princess Bride. We liked it the way it was, right? That's what he's saying. Check this out. Satan's a counterfeiter. You see this throughout the chapter. Both Jesus and the beast were slain. Both rise to new life. Both have followers with their names written on their foreheads. Both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Both receive worldwide worship and both have a final coming or manifestation. The one is to destruction and the other is to eternal victory. G.K. Beale says the beast's career is thus a kind of parody of Christ's death and resurrection employed to show how the evil spirit behind the beast continues to operate, right? And then he clarifies, though within divinely imposed limits, 
in the period of time from Christ's resurrection until his return. So hence the reference once again to 42 months. It's the time between Christ's ascension and his return as that these two beasts are roaming the earth, constantly trying to get us to divert our attention away from the worship of the true Christ to the state in whatever form that takes, whether it's in our right-wing system or whether it's in a left-wing system. It's just trying to get us to say that we're gonna worship something other than Jesus. And so the reference to the forehead and the right hand that's found in the Old Testament. Nothing said in the New in Revelation that wasn't already said in the Old Testament, right? This is known as the Shema. Joe read it at the beginning. Deuteronomy six, chapter four, or chapter six, verses four through nine. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets, forehead, between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Saying that you should know the law of the Lord so much that you've got it written everywhere. It's written on your hand. It's written on your forehead. It's written on the doors of your house. You're teaching your kids the law of the Lord as you go, as you walk, right? Parents, it's your job to teach your kids. That's what it's saying right there. But what, what John wants you to see is that the forehead symbolizes your ideological commitment, right? In other words, what's captivated you is what controls your life. We're all worshipers. We're worshiping something. It's whatever it is that's captivated you is what you're worshiping. The hand represents action. So in other words, what you worship is what you serve. Matt Chandler puts it this way. We're talking about internal character made manifest in behavior. So that means that some of us are carrying the mark of the beast right now. You carry the mark of the beast when you're not serious about holiness. We carry the mark of the beast when we refuse to put sin to death. We carry it when we worship worldly pleasures more than we worship Christ. We carry it when we're not being serious about the kingdom of God. Putting our trust in something else is the mark of the beast, right? So this means, all right, and don't get mad at me for this, but I'm saying it anyways, okay, you listening? Left-wing and right-wing ideologies are both sixes. They both fall short. They both fall short. They're both empty. Neither satisfy. Again, I, I quote Matt Chandler. He had a great example of this. He said, the ride is correct to a point, but then after that, they serve the dragon. The left is correct to a point, but then after that, they serve the dragon. James Hamilton says the point of application is very simple. Let's disabuse ourselves of any false hope that some merely human government is going to bring in the kingdom of God. God's King Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom of God. And until he does, we are not to be fooled by cheap imitations. Listen, folks, Satan is so subtle and he constantly is trying to fool us into worshiping the wrong things. And I love you enough to say what I'm about to say. In our little corner of the world, he gets us with patriotism and he gets us every time. Now, don't get angry. Patriotism is a good thing. We should be proud of our country, love our country, seek to be good citizens of our country. We should serve our country and above all, yes, honor those who have served our country. Yes and amen. But when we start worshiping the country, we've crossed a line. We've crossed a line. 
And it is a very, very tight rope that we walk, is it not? We have to be careful that our ideological commitment to conservative principles doesn't replace our commitment to Jesus. So if the only way that you can worship Christ is if you have the government you want, then the beast has you. I love our democracy and I pray for it and you better be praying for it. But listen to me, if it falls, it doesn't change anything for me. I'm still worshiping Christ. So last week, man, you guys were all fired up after the sermon, right? I think I actually preached a good sermon for the first time in seven years. It was crazy, right? I walked in and Mary said, I preached the stars down. I was like, well, I didn't see him, but that's cool, right? But I mean, I just wanted to quit after that, Mary. I was like, I'm done, right? I finally did it. I'm going. But listen, when you realize how difficult it is and how tricky Satan is, it's really hard to stay fired up, isn't it? Right? I can get your adrenaline going, right? It's like a football game. That pregame speech is great until about five minutes in, and you're like, man, this guy's kicking my tail, right? It's hard to get that speech going again. So, so, so what do we do? If he's so tricky, and he's so subtle, and he tries to get to divert our attention, what do we do? We'll go back to chapter 12. Go back to verse 11. Let's look at it again. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's how we conquer, guys. So first again, know the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Swim in it. Preach it to others. Realize it is all we have. That Jesus has made a way for us where there was no way. That Jesus and Jesus alone saves. Not a government, not a nation, right? Not a system uh, of democracy. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who brings in his kingdom. Remember the gospel that Jesus has promised to hold us and keep us to the end and that absolutely nothing can stand in the way of that. So how do we know if our names are written in the book of life? We endure, we conquer, we keep our eyes on Jesus. That's how we know. So preach the gospel, know the gospel. But the second is the word of our testimony. That's God's word. That means knowing what it says about us. So last week we said when Satan accuses us, we go, no, 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 that's not what the book says. That's not who God says I am. Look what he says about me. But hear me, it also means knowing that the Bible says you're a bunch of sheep, right? Sheep are dumb. We're not smart. It means knowing that the Bible says our hearts are deceitful and we can't trust them. So it means that we have to dig into God's word, that you and I need to know God's word so well that we can spot the fake, that we need to know it, that when we hear false teaching, even if it sounds right, we can go, wait a minute, something's off right? We've been going through a Bible study on Wednesday night on, on expository preaching and what that is, right? Why we preach book by verse and verse by verse. And this past Wednesday, we had a great discussion because the whole point of the lesson was who's responsible for the church's teaching? You are. You, the church, are responsible for the church's teaching. I may pick the direction, but as believers, we should know God's word so well that if the pastor gets up here and says something that's just completely crazy, right? And I'm talking about the essentials, right? Don't email me about 666, okay? All right? The theme's still the same. But if he says something completely crazy, we're able to say, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something's off. It means knowing the real thing so well that the counterfeit doesn't fool you. So, so FBI agents that are in the counterfeit department, how do they know a real bill from a fake bill? They don't sit around all day looking at fake bills, 
they know the real bill so well that when they see the fake, they can spot it, right? So listen to me, look at the political landscape around you right now. I hope that it's crystal clear to every one of us. There is no political redemption coming. The state can't save you. The right candidate can't save you. Vague spirituality won't save you. If all you have is a vague, mediocre, bad country song Christianity, then you won't be able to survive the fight as it gets worse. We need to know God's word. We need to know who the lamb is, the lamb who conquers by shedding his blood for you and for me and rising again. And now he reigns, now he rules over the cosmos, right? So, so we conquer by the gospel, we con- conquer by knowing the word, but then listen, finally, we, we conquer by loving our lives, not even unto death. So that means that Jesus is more important to us than anything. It means that we don't worship the things of this earth. We worship the king. The king's more important than anything else. Look at Revelation 13, 9 through 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Pretty simple statement. There's no avoiding what God has predestined to happen to you. You all have an expiration date. God knows when you're going to die. He knows how you're going to die. He knows the way you're going to go out, okay? So if you're predestined to be taken captive one day, to God be the glory, you have the opportunity to show that God means more to you than your life, that he means more to you than your freedom. See, he says this is a call for his believers to exercise wisdom and endure. So know the real from the fake. Worship the real no matter what Satan and his unholy beasts throw at us. Because as the time approaches, they will throw more and more and more at us. So what I ask you this morning is this, is do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in the lamb who died for you? Or are you worshiping a fake? See, the real Jesus died on the cross to save those who believe from the consequences of their sin. The real Jesus will come back one day and he will bring destruction on his enemies. So today, if you don't know him, would you put your faith and trust in him? And then finally, listen, brothers and sisters, would we commit ourselves to loving Jesus, the lamb who was slain, to knowing the real thing, to digging into God's word so that we're able to spot the counterfeit when it comes along, even if it sounds right, that we're able to go, wait a minute, that's not pointing me to Jesus. That's pointing me away to something different and prepare ourselves for the fight that we're in. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm gonna ask our deacons to come down and we're gonna go to the Lord's table today. And the reason we're gonna do that is we're going to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We're gonna remind ourselves of the real thing. We're gonna set our eyes, not on a counterfeit, but on our savior. And so I'll tell you, like I always tell you, that if you're a guest with us this morning and you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to the table right? This is not off limits to you, but if you're not a Christian this morning, listen, nobody's going to judge you, but we're just going to ask that you sit this one out. We believe, and the Bible says this, that this is for the family. This is for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, right? And the other thing I will tell you is this, is the Bible also asks us to examine our lives to make sure that we're not taking this in an unholy manner. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to ask that with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, that you would examine yourself today, confess any sin, right? Ask God to show us where maybe we're, we're placing our faith in a counterfeit. 
We all have areas. I have blind spots, folks. Me too, right? Have areas where I go, man, I'm trusting this far more than I'm trusting Christ. And we all need to confess that and then turn your attention back to the lamb who died for you. So Father, we thank you for this day and I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you for what he's done to take away our sins. Father, do not let us be fooled by counterfeits and by cheap imitations. Help us to remember that the only person that can save us is Jesus. So no matter how hard Satan tries to divert our attention away from him and to put it on a, on a figure or on, a, on an entity or on a state, that, Father, we would always look back to Jesus and say that Jesus is the most important thing and that Jesus is the one who's going to bring in the kingdom that we're looking for. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.